Welcome to Dwight Explains the Bible. Today we're going to talk about slavery, abortion, and genocide, and I've got an exciting announcement at the end of this episode. Before we get into any of the topics, let's just take a fun little look at the Bible real quick. So everybody knows the book of Job. That's the one where God basically cursed Job six ways from Sunday, where he, you know, cursed him, taking his family, making him sick, just everything you can think of just to test his loyalty. Well, let's take a look at that real quick. First off, why was God just having a buddy-buddy conversation with Satan? Why would you even listen to what Satan has to say? Why would Satan be in a position where he's talking with God and convincing God to do these horrible things? The Bible says that angels went in God's presence and with them was Satan. Well, I thought evil and sin couldn't be in God's presence. So how is Satan going back and forth uh, with God in heaven? Why would God have to have a macho fight with Satan about how loyal Job is. Doesn't God know everything? Doesn't God know the beginning and the end? Doesn't God know the choices that Job would make? Doesn't Satan know that God already knows these things? Right? So why is this even happening? What about this makes sense to anybody? All right, so let's get right into it. Let's talk about slavery in the Bible. Does the Bible promote slavery? The short answer is yes, it does. Now, the Bible has different rules and regulations for different types of people. There are different rules for the Israelites themselves there's different rules from the heathens you buy from the nations around you. And then there's different rules for the women you take as slaves. Whenever a Christian talks about slavery in the Bible, they talk about it being indentured servitude, right? They're always saying, oh, it's an indentured servitude. They only say that because they've never read the Bible and they only listen to what their pastor is telling them. Their pastor is only telling them about the good parts because he's trying to sell a false narrative about what the Bible actually says. So the rules for the Israelites, which is God's people, God rescued his people from slavery, says, you shall not enslave my people, but my people will enslave your people, talking to everybody else. So the Israelites, when they took a, a, an Israelite in as you know a slave, that would be an indentured servitude. Under Exodus 21, it states that Israelites, on their seventh year, they're supposed to be released debt-free. Their debt has been repaid, with the exception of if they have taken a wife and kids. The slave owner can buy women and assign them to the slaves. And then that slave, whether you know, the Israelite slave would now have a wife, they would have kids, they would start a family. And then on the seventh year, the Israelite would have to make a decision. Do I walk out on my family 
or do I stay with them and be a slave forever? The woman is the property of the slave owner. The kids born to that woman are property of the slave owner. So at the seven-year jubilee, the Israelite indentured servants are allowed to go free if they want to walk out on their family. The women are never free to go. They do not go free at the seven-year jubilee. And then continuing on in Exodus 21, it talks about the heathens that you buy from the nations around you. With your heathen slaves, you're allowed to beat them as long as they recover by the end of the second day. So you can beat them with a rod, and as long as they survive, it's okay, there's no punishment. Now, it does say that if you cause a slave to lose an eye or chip a tooth, then you're supposed to let them free. You're not supposed to have any visible signs that you're beating them. In Leviticus chapter 25, it goes more into the heathens where it says you can buy them from the nations around you or for, from those living within your nations. It talks about making them slaves for life. You pass them on to your children as inherited property. So if this was an indentured servant, they would be freed after they paid their debt. But this uh, chapter clearly states that they are slaves for life. And you combine that with Exodus where it says you can beat your slaves. That's exactly what chattel slavery was just a few years ago. You have slaves as property for life and you can beat them. The only difference is you don't want their disfigurement shown. You don't want to show that you busted an eye. And obviously you don't want to kill them because you spent your money on it and you don't want to waste your money. Now when we look at the Israelites um, under Leviticus 25... There's a verse that says, you shall not rule over your fellow Israelites so ruthlessly as you do your heathen slaves. So the heathen slaves, you can rule ruthlessly, but your fellow Israelites, they're your people, they're God's people. You don't rule them ruthlessly. Um, at the seven-year jubilee, if they came in with a family of their own, then they get to leave with their family. If they brought in their own wife, they had their own kids, or the kids were made from a wife that the Israelite brought in with him, then he's allowed to leave with that wife and the children. But again, Exodus 21, if the wife was given to him, she was purchased as a slave, then that slave stays with the slave owner. Now, some of the most common arguments that I hear about the slavery in the Bible from Christians are verses that have nothing to do with it. They'll give you a verse that says you're not supposed to kidnap another person. Well, these verses talk about buying a slave, buying them, which means you are purchasing them lawfully. You're not kidnapping them. There's also a verse that talks about being in possession of a stolen slave. Well, that's the same thing. It it belongs to the slave owner. It doesn't say don't have slaves. It says you cannot be in possession of stolen goods. 
then they try to say that we're under a new covenant. Well, yeah, but God is the same today as tomorrow, and that's the God that said slavery is okay and you can beat your slaves, right? When Christians don't have any other arguments, their next favorite thing to say is, you're taking it out of context. Well, fortunately for you guys, I've given you the context. Read Exodus 21, the whole chapter. Just read the whole thing. There's all your context. Leviticus 25, read the whole thing. In Leviticus, the important verses are 44 through 46, but just read the whole thing. I don't care. Read as much context as you want. There's no context that you can provide that's going to make it not say what it clearly says. So basically to recap, the three categories, you have the heathens from the nations around you. You can beat them. They're slaves for life. The women are also property. If the slave owner buys them, they are property for life. The children are property. But the fellow Israelites are free to go on the seventh year. Now let's get into abortion. So many Christians say the Bible does not promote abortion. And the verse that most atheists go to are the ones that the Christians refute the most. However, the Christians ignore what the Bible says. So let's take a look together at what the Bible says about abortion. Numbers chapter 5, the unfaithful wife test or the bitter water test. The woman shows up, uh, her husband presents her to the priest, the priest makes a bitter solution, the woman drinks it, and if she is unfaithful, the Bible says it causes her uh, thigh to rot, her abdomen uh, to swell, um, her womb to miscarry, depending on what translation you use, when it says your thigh to rot, the thigh is code word for the womb. Certain versions um, take certain protective liberties over using sensitive topics. So it'll say thigh, but it's literally the womb. Um, some versions say your womb miscarries, so it specifically says it. The Christians like to say, no, it's a curse. It's a curse that the, the woman comes back to her land and she's unable to have kids. Well, that's true, but part of that curse is also killing anything that is inside of her. If there is a fetus, an embryo inside of that woman and her thigh rots, her womb swells, her womb miscarries, what happens to that child? A forced miscarriage is called an abortion. As much as they want to argue, they can't change the words that's written on the paper. The words are there. The meaning is there. It does, in fact, say abortion. Well, literally, it'll say your thigh to rot or your thigh to swell or your womb to miscarry. But that's what an abortion is. That's what it's talking about. So what do we learn from Numbers chapter 5? We learn that God cares about his image and the image of his people. He doesn't want his women to be unfaithful to the men. So the fetus is a disposable, dispensable item to him. You can just make another kid some other time. 
What matters to God is not the life of a child, but rather the image of his people. We know that God is very egocentric. God is very concerned about his image. If you don't worship him, you die. His people, uh, like the Le- Le- the Levites, the Levitical priests, they're not supposed to trim their beards because beards make you seem wise. And he wants his people to seem wise. So he told them not to trim their beards. It gives an image. If the woman doesn't bleed from her first sexual encounter with her new husband, she's supposed to be stoned to death. This is God clearly ignoring his own creation of the human anatomy. He ignores his creation and promotes his image. He doesn't care about people. We are disposable to God. What God cares about is his image. The pastors lie to their congregation and try to tell people how important we are to God. We are not important to God. God's image is important to God. If you worship God, then you're helping his image, so then he wants you. There's another verse in the Bible where it talks about if you were in a fight with somebody and you accidentally hit a pregnant woman and it causes her to have a miscarriage, then you have to pay for the price of that child had that child been sold into slavery, which is like 30 shekels or something. And the difference here is if you accidentally cause somebody to miscarry, you pay the price. But if it's purposeful to protect God's image, then it's okay. No big deal. There's two different passages in the Bible where God talks about knowing people in the womb. He tells Jeremiah, I knew you in the womb. I formed you um, because Jeremiah was going to be this great prophet. So he knew Jeremiah because Jeremiah was going to serve his purpose. There's also a passage about God knowing David that's less clear, but it talks about knowing him in the womb. Again, David is a prophet. He was going to be the king, right? So he's somebody important, not us random nobodies that are disposable to God. He doesn't care about us. There is also a spot in the New Testament where Mary and Elizabeth were visiting each other and when one of the one of them spoke and the other one's baby was moving in the womb they're trying to say that that means God considers us important in the womb which is ridiculous once you know how babies just naturally move around in the womb and that these phrases were most likely just lip service. They were just a phrase used to elicit emotion to show how great the mothers were to meet each other. How many times when you're writing something online, do you add LOL, but you never once laughed? You did not laugh out loud, but you add that to the text for dramatic effect. Why do parables 
only happen when it benefits the Christian narrative. That's ridiculous and it's dishonest because the pastors are intellectually dishonest when they spread what the Bible says and the Christians don't read the Bible themselves so they have no idea what it actually says. So we get the continuation of a disingenuous message presented by somebody trying to get your money. See what happens if you go to church and you just don't donate your money anymore. Is the pastor still going to be there? Are they still going to have service? And now let's talk about genocides. Oddly enough, genocides also cover abortions. When God flooded the earth, how many pregnant mothers were there that got wiped out? When God struck down Sodom and Gomorrah, how many pregnant mothers were there? Um, when God ordered his people to kill the Amalekites, saying kill the men, the women, the children, the infants, the suckling, and even the goddamn cattle, how many pregnant mothers were killed? When, he, when God sent his people to kill the Midianites, he said kill them all, but save the virgin daughters for yourselves. They are the spoils of war. When he killed the Midianites, how many pregnant mothers were killed? Now, I digress. Let's go back to just the generic topic of genocides. In the Bible, it says, thou shall not murder. The word murder is a different word in Hebrew than the word kill. So when he orders his people to kill the Amalekites, it's a different word than when he says, do not murder. The difference in Hebrew is that murdering someone is unjust and killing is a just murder. Now, we might have situations where we would kill somebody and we would consider it just. Somebody's breaking into your house and he's attacking someone, so you uh, you shoot him and he dies. Like, well, you're justified in defending yourself and your family. But name any situation that you can think of where you would be justified in exterminating an entire village. When would you ever be justified in killing all the men, the women, the children, the uh, infants, and suckling? Just because the Christians can justify it doesn't mean we can justify it. That just means the Christians' threshold of knowing the difference between good and evil is messed up. When we talk about the Spanish Inquisitions or the Catholic Crusades, uh, us atheists like to say that they were acting under God's words and the Christians have to deny that, but they can't deny what's in the Bible because they're holding it in their hands. But in both situations, somebody claims that God spoke to them and told them to kill all these people. In both situations, all these people were killed. In all these situations, these people were killed for God's glory. Ask your Christian friends, how do they know that the Catholic Crusades were not divinely inspired? How do they actually know that? How do they know? Would they say God wouldn't do that? Well, they have a Bible, don't they? God clearly has done that. If God's done it before, he'll do it again. If they say, uh, we're under a new covenant, we have Jesus now. Yeah, and Jesus said, if you go into a nation, 
and they don't accept the gospel, it'll be more unbearable for them than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jesus is perpetuating the teachings of the Old Testament God. The Bible promotes killing everybody that doesn't believe in God. What does the covenant have to do with the Amalekites? They're not under a covenant with God. What does the covenant of God have to do with the Edomites or the Midianites? Now, the Midianites are, are the followers of Midian, which was a son of Moses who turned his back on the God of the Bible and did his own thing. So, okay, maybe there's a little bit of justification in there. They turned away from God. They deserve to die. Really? So if you change your mind, you deserve to die? This is not morally good. This is not okay. These are not the people that we can trust to be in charge of the government, to be in charge of anything of power or influence over our children. If they can't understand the basics of good and evil without having to consult their book or their God, they are not mentally sane. They are not a thinking and logical being. How can you trust somebody who might all of the sudden think they hear God's voice telling them to kill people? How many mothers out there have killed their kids because they thought God told them to? I personally know someone whose son killed himself because he thought he heard God's voice telling him to do that. We tell kids, you need to listen to God. God speaks to you. Well, that's exactly what happened. They were listening. They heard a voice. They thought it was God, and they did what God asked. Congratulations. Why do these Christians think that they're going to hear God's voice and it's only going to be something good? It's only going to be something good. It's not like God would ever ask you to kill the men, the women, the children, the infants and suckling, would he? So to be a true follower of the Bible, you have to be okay with abortion because so is God. You have to be okay with slavery because so is God. And you have to think that wiping out entire villages is justified because God is. God definitely thinks that. Knowing the character of God from the Bible, would you think that he ordered the Catholic Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Mormon Massacre? Does that sound like his character? Because it sounds like it to me. The KKK? When they were pushing their narratives all over the place, guess which book they were following? There's a verse in Corinthians, out of the darkness, we bring light. And that's when they would light the cross. When a Christian says, well, we need to do better, or that's not a real Christian, all they're doing is kicking the can down the road. We'll deal with that problem later. We'll push it off. How do you know that the person in the KKK was wrong and not a real follower of Christ and you are? What if you are the one who's not right because you're not doing what they did? Is God racist? Well, he said, enslave everyone who's not an Israelite. That sounds like racism. The biblical definition of love, the definition of God's love is horrible. It's disgusting and it's evil. 
All right, so that's it for the topics of this episode, but now we have a fun announcement. I'm going to be starting season two of my podcast, and on season two, I'm going to be getting guests to join in with me. I'm going to have more educated people to explain the different aspects of Christianity through time and in the nation. Um, I'm getting historians. I'm getting you know, avid researchers. I'm going to have people of different faiths, uh, paganism, and whatever else to join in and have different conversations so you get more perspectives. You can hear more than just my stupid, angry voice the whole time. Now you get to hear other stupid, angry voices. <laughs> so season one was basically talking about the Bible. Season two is going to be talking about the people of the Bible, the supporters of the Bible, Christians, and how they've affected society throughout history and today. So season one was why the book, the Bible, the book, was a horrible book. Season two is why the followers of the book are horrible. I should have my first episode of the new season in just a couple days. So thank you, everyone, who's gone on this ride with me, uh, stayed with me this long. Um, Hopefully you'll be excited about season two, because I am. I'm still not monetizing any of my platforms. My website, godisababykiller.com, this podcast, my YouTube, on TikTok. I'm not monetizing this. I'm just trying to get the message out. So people can understand what the Bible says and how to protect their families against people who have this toxic, hateful ideology. So let me leave you with just one tiny bit of homework, and it'll bring a smile to your face. Look up Psalm 81, verse 10. Psalm 81, verse 10. You'll, you can thank me later. <laughs>